Welcome to Hospitality Meets with me, Phil Street, where we take a light-hearted look into the stories and individuals that make up the wonderful world of hospitality. Today's guest is Ben O'Brien, founder and chair at Source Market and all-round fresh food champion. Coming up on today's show, it's no holds barred as Ben threatens Phil. We're on to you. Sort your shit out, and uh, otherwise it, it really will be game over. More incredible advice from your Uncle Phil. If what you want doesn't exist, just go and start it yourself. And Ben makes a statement that no one thought they'd ever hear. So far, I have to admit, HMRC has been really good. All that and so much more as Ben talks us through his story to date with some incredible insight into funding a food startup and regenerative agriculture, something we should all be getting behind. Don't forget to give us a like and a share across your favourite social channels. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to the next edition of Hospitality Meets with me, Phil Street. Today, I'm super excited to welcome to the show someone who's something of a serial entrepreneur by the looks of things from the outside looking in. Uh, serial founder as well. If they're one and the same thing, we'll, we'll find out. But culminating in, in presently is now the, the chairman of Sourced Market, having once upon a time been the founder of it and is now also the co-founder of Venn Street Market, which is a food market in Clapham. Welcome to the show, Ben O'Brien. Hi, Phil. Thanks for inviting me on. You're very, very welcome. How are you doing today? Pretty good, actually. Uh, you've caught me at a, a, probably a, the most positive uh, moment that I've had for a while. I've, I've just got back from a few days of holiday, so that's my first time out of the country for months, so that was very refreshing. But very perhaps nice. more... More significantly, for with Sourced, we've just opened a, a brand new site uh, in a motorway service station uh, just outside of Leeds. So after months of obviously dealing with the end of the world and working out how we strategically pivot and how we save the business, there's finally been some some really exciting good news, and it feels like we're there's light at the end of the tunnel. So yeah, I'm feeling very optimistic this week. Fabulous. Well, that's awesome. First of all, let's get the, the pleasantries out of the way. Whereabouts in the world were are you on your break? I was in Puglia, which is the heel of Italy. Very nice. And a very uh, food-centric part of Italy, if there is any parts of Italy that are not food-centric, I should say. I think they're all pretty food-centric, but Puglia, vegetables, just amazing produce. They've obviously got lots and lots of sunshine. So the, the things that grow there and that they they serve there it's all about simple amazing food so actually ate very little meat almost all vegetables stayed on an amazing masseria which is like an agriturismo for a kind of farmhouse with rooms and the stuff that they grew there the, the tomatoes the figs the um the olive oil the, the wine all they all grew on the estate and it was just all amazing so yeah very enjoyable from a food perspective that does sound amazing, and uh, I'm sure no wine was had at any stage. <laughs> Why on earth would you say that? <laughs> I will leave that there. That's fine. So yeah, you've you've opened in uh, a services, which I, I think is is kind of a new slant for you guys, if I'm not mistaken. It is, yes. So we've always had a, a travel focus. Our first site, which we opened in 2009 is the one that we have in St Pancras Station. So if you like, we yep. cut our teeth on travel. And over the years, we've opened a number of high street sites. Uh, but St Pancras has always been the, the flagship. It's always been the beating heart of the business. It's always been our busiest site. And I think 
well, a year ago, strategically, we decided to pivot the business back to focus on travel. High streets was becoming uh, increasingly difficult with rising costs, increased competition for for good people. And we felt that uh, travel was, we still had a footfall. Travel locations were still seeing increases in footfall. So our strategy was to focus on rail, uh, air, and then we had an opportunity for a motorway service station, which has actually proved to be uh, an incredibly sensible decision post-COVID because whereas rail and air locations have obviously suffered uh, from falls in footfall because people aren't using those forms of transport, motorway service stations have been almost completely unaffected because people are still traveling by by car. So we're yeah. uh, very excited about the opportunity full stop. But I think financially, it's given us great security uh, looking forward in terms of our revenues. Yeah. I, and I think as well, just from a pure consumer perspective, this is kind of news to, to any driver's ears, I would imagine, because actually the the standard of food across motorway services can sometimes not be up to a, a particularly high standard. That's a very kind way of putting it, Phil. Yeah, <laughs> I'll have to try and be diplomatic on this show. Yeah, well, we got we got approached about the opportunity, I guess, around about a year ago now, probably more than a year ago, actually, probably getting on for 18 months ago. And I tend to travel by train. Um, so I thought, right, right okay, I need to go to a motorway service station and, and just think, properly think through what, what it could look like for Source. Uh, and I went to visit the amazing services on the M5 at Gloucester, which uh, there's a, one on the north, one on the south bound, and they are like a giant farm shop with an amazing selection of produce. So that's obviously a great example of how it can be done fantastically well. And mm. I learned on visiting the location that people actually go on coach trips from reasonably close by cities like Birmingham, specifically to visit the motorway service station, which I was wow. quite surprised by it, but I think yeah. what it does do is indicate that if you do do something well, people will come. But I then went to perhaps the more typical motorway service stations that we all we all know and hate, and yeah. <laughs> they're, a, they're a depressing experience. You just want to get out. You walk in, they're badly designed, they're full of fast food, and not even perhaps yeah. the exciting fast food brands. They're not, they're not very exciting places. You know, you have to baffle what your way through all the smokers to that side, the, the main entrance, and your best hope of a, of a coffee is probably Starbucks or Costa. Yeah. And uh, my, my initial reaction was, do I see source market in one of these locations? And it seemed like it was not a good fit. But then I thought back to when we opened in, in a train station 11 years ago, and actually what you would have found in a train station in 2008, 2009 would have been a whistle stop, uh, an apple crust, a Burger King, maybe those that, that was as good as it got. So actually when yep. we opened in, in St. Pancras in 2009, we were a, a, a dramatic change. We were a real breath of fresh air and the, we had to actually battle with a lot of doubters within the industry, in particular at, uh, at Network Rail, that putting the quality of product that we offered in that location would actually work. The people people thought at the time it, there wouldn't be the demand for it. Obviously, we demonstrated that there is. And my view is that motorway service stations are just a little bit behind the curve. And people now want the quality that you can get 
on the high street and in other travel locations like increasingly train and airport locations they want that they want that in a most business station i mean why wouldn't they yeah so that's the logic yeah but what makes complete sense and actually um having been lucky enough to kind of drive through europe a little bit in my my time as a driver we i don't mean as a professional driver by the way just uh no, i would think a vision of yeah. you as a, an hcv driver then yeah that'd be lovely I remember being in Switzerland and being absolutely blown away by the possibility of what you could do at a motorway services. The uh, there was just food stations and food stations and more food stations and everything was fresh. They even had like a a, a made fresh pizza station, a made fresh stir fry station, you know, right in front of your eyes and mm-hmm. very quick turnover. But it the there was just an uplift in quality of produce and and actually the the thought process that went into the whole experience around mm-hmm. actually let's give people a nice place to sit and okay in switzerland you can have a, a an outdoor seat that looks onto mountains and that's not necessarily something that we're blessed with in, in this country in every location but but nevertheless i i always thought to myself look at what's possible with the right will and the right desire to do something and it's definitely a space that has needed uh, a bit more of a quality touch for for quite some time Yes, yes. Well, funnily enough, with some of the things that you mentioned about the location that you visited in Switzerland, we've got in Leeds, we're actually located on an RSPB reserve and a lake. So we do actually right. have a very, very nice outside seating area. It's probably not quite, uh, doesn't quite have the drama of the Alps, but it's uh, it, it's a step up from your typical motorway service stations. And we, we are also doing fresh pasta cooked to order and uh, free range Yorkshire rotisserie chicken. So uh, the, oh, nice. uh, the, there will be a bit of that food theatre and it will be a nice environment. And I think those those two things will really add to the experience. Great stuff. Well, no, I, I salute you and I wish you all the very best with uh, with that. Thank but you. now I'm going to take you all the way back to the beginning of your career mm. and, and just give us a, a run through of kind of how you got involved in food businesses in the first place. Well, my background going back to sort of post-university time is, is actually music industry. So I had an artist management company, uh, which I started soon after university with my best friend from uni. And that grew over the years. And we had a little record label imprint and a, a, and a small publishing company, which was a hell of a lot of fun yeah, in my 20s. You know, paid for quite a fun lifestyle. By complete chance, I ended up renting a room in a, a flat share on Borough Market in 2002, I think. Right. And at the time, I wasn't aware of the market. And I went to went to look at the flat on a Sunday Sunday evening, and everything was dark. Everything was boarded up. It literally felt like there could have been tumbleweed going down the street. It was yeah. It was a very sort of cold, empty location. But the flat was great. Like I liked the people living there. Took the room, moved in. And then on the first Saturday, suddenly I walked out the door and there was this amazing market on my doorstep, which I couldn't believe I hadn't been aware of it, but it, it really was, uh, it really opened my eyes. Now, I'd always been an avid consumer of food. I loved cooking, I loved eating out, but I never really knew what it took to get it from field to fork, if you like. But over, over the years, I got to know uh, a number of the the traders and the the producers that that were at Borough Market and uh, learned a bit more about what what goes into making great food and getting it to your plate. 
And it, it, it fascinated me. And at this time, I was spending quite a bit of time at music festivals with, with acts that I represented. And I would come back from a weekend away and I would, I would just moan about the food. Because at that time, if you were at a music festival, the, the best that you could expect to get was typically a, a, a frozen burger from a, from a white van or, or, or some dodgy hot dog. It, it really was the, the worst of the worst because no love went into it. It was seen as a, a, an afterthought by the promoter, just an opportunity to make a bit of, bit of money, you know. And I just, I just thought, well, actually, great food and great music in my head went together yeah. uh, and and over a kind of period of time i persuaded a, a few of the traders that that this was also an opportunity for them and i think i was helped by the fact some of them were were, were younger and actually just quite fancied the idea of going to a music festival for a weekend and not having to buy a ticket so um that was definitely a, one of the arguments for getting people involved <laughs> and we did the very first event we did was the Innocent Village Fate in August 2007, which had previously been called Fruitstock, but they'd had some issues with overcapacity and they'd rebranded it for the, for the year that we got involved. But we essentially built a market in a field for, for the weekend and we had 30 or so traders, nearly all of them from Borough Market. And it was, it was a bit like a giant picnic. We had everything from farmers doing burgers to stores with olives and and salads and cheese and it, yeah. uh, you know less street food than you would typically find at a music festival this, these days and more borough market but it was an overnight success we kind of sweated blood and tears creating the thing and getting it together because we'd never done it before and there wasn't really a precedent but it was an overnight success the guys pretty much sold out on day one and spent the night cooking and prepping to get food together for day two the punters loved good food. Innocent loved the association with having great food at the event. And I realized that good food and good music do go together. And this is something that we we all recognize now. It's one of those things that seems like a no-brainer, but actually going back 15 years wasn't necessarily. Mm. Um, and I used my connections within the music business to take this this idea, this market on the on the road to other other events. And we did all kinds of amazing events from love box to secret garden party to big chill to cows week and it was a lot of fun uh and for two years this was a great side hustle i did it alongside my main business but at the time i was having some frustrations with the with the music business it was not responding very well to the emergence of digital big record labels were still trying to keep cds as the dominant format and weren't doing very well so there wasn't much investment in new music and i was finding that the things that we were i guess doing commercially well with were not necessarily the things that creatively i was passionate about and the projects that i was creatively passionate about we were really struggling to get anywhere with right. and i guess i realized that my passion was was food and I decided that it, what i wanted was to to open something permanent so rather than source market being a weekend thing at a festival that was over in a few days and to some extent at the at the mercy of the English weather and uh, festival promoters uh, and, and neither of those are, uh, I would recommend being at the mercy of. Um, <laughs> I realised I wanted to do something permanent and, and felt that that hopefully was a much more viable financial model as well. 
because as great as much fun as the events were it was very much hit and miss whether we ended up kind of up or down at the end of the weekend so i got tipped off actually by somebody i knew from the events world about an opportunity at st pancras station so the Eurostar had been moved from Waterloo to St Pancras in 2007. The station had been completely refurbished and they were looking to put a farmer's market into the station. And this is effectively what I was doing for music festivals and for events. And so I just been completely naive to the, the world of, of property and uh, food retail. I just thought, well, I'll just phone Network Rail up then and uh, find out a bit more. So I did that. and. I guess got my foot in the door through the merit of actually knowing some of the big brands at Borough Market at the time, like Brindisa and Niels Yardari and Monmouth. And, uh, uh, and we looked at the site and it was a very awkward shape. It was 40 meters from one end to the other, but only four meters deep. And it was, it was, so it's very shallow. They also saw it as five separate units. So it was HS1, the company that was high speed one was the company behind all of this. And they saw it as a, you know, a butcher, a baker, a greengrocer, et cetera. But each one of those has very different operational requirements. And all of them were somewhat intimidated by the uh, revenue requirements for operating the station and, and a lot of the other things that go with it. And over the period of time, it became apparent that the idea of a genuine farmer's market was not going to work in the station environment. And I pitched the idea of source market. The concept was to really take the best of a great market. So the model being Borough Market at the time. So take the best of the market in the shape of the quality of the produce, the, uh, the sourcing, uh, the atmosphere, uh, and, and the, the, the general experience, but actually deliver it in a much more condensed format and with the convenient location and with the opening hours that you would expect of that kind of a, that kind of a location. So we were going to be open mm. seven days a week, you know, 14, 16 hours a day, unlike uh, a farmer's market. Unfortunately, one of the consultants on the project was a, a guy that I'm sure you will know called Nick Lander, who had been advising, advising the, the station on the F&B offer, and he really got what, what we were trying to achieve with Source, and he had the ear of the, the chief exec, and that really helped push the project forward. But it, like, like all successes, there was a, a significant amount of luck and timing involved. Right. We'd had Lehman's crashed in September 2008, so we were having these conversations with Network Rail in January 2009. So we just entered the, the huge recession following the financial crisis. So most sensible people in, in in retail were not necessarily taking on new leases, and particularly not new leases for very awkward shaped sites. So yes. St Pancras now is is a, an ideal location because I mean Kings Cross has been the biggest regeneration project in in Europe, and now it's the where all businesses want to be located in London, but it. That was not the case in 2008-2009. It was it was a world away from what it is now. So we were we we obviously had the right concept that nobody else really had at the time, and we were pitching something that this station wanted within St Pancras. But we were we were a starter. We had no covenant. We had we had we weren't a, a, a Starbucks or a Burger King or a 
any of the other brands that you would typically put in a station that could put down a big rent deposit or or could demonstrate their you know many years of profitability as, as security but because there weren't so many other companies after the lease and because they at the timing of the project they wanted to fill the space and get it open we actually had a, a an opportunity and, and to the best of my knowledge we were the first startup to to get a lease in a in a mainline train station in the uk so we got right. open and it, it, i mean it was there were definitely difficult moments because we had to raise some cash for so the disadvantage so the advantage of starting a business in a recession is clearly that there are opportunities created by the fact that possibly other people aren't taking those opportunities or other people are struggling the disadvantage of starting a business in a recession is trying to raise money I was uh, say. You, yeah typically can't get it from uh, the normal sources and we funded so i had three three um uh, business partners at the time that put money in i put my own cash in and that got us probably about halfway there um and we had a a, a small loan of fifty thousand pounds from hsbc which i think was probably that was probably about the last year that a startup could get a loan from a from a bank i don't think these things that i mean these things are almost impossible to get hold of now um but actually we it took quite a while to get all these sources of finance together and that the balance actually was some asset finance and we ended up having to sign the lease for the site before we actually got the money to open it so that was a bit of a bit of a nail-biting moment because that we had to sign the lease or potentially lose the opportunity but obviously signing the lease commits you to some quite significant financial outgoings that you are we would personally be liable for because we had to provide personal guarantees because we didn't have any other way of providing security at the time. Yeah. So so yeah, now biting moment. We got it open and it was all very exciting. We, it, 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 as we were saying before, what we're hoping to do at the station is is people people loved it. You know, the exciting thing was doing something fresh and different and seeing how people coming in, how customers reacted to it, how they appreciated uh, having good food and drink and seeing our, our sales uh, gradually grow. And, um, you know, we had a rocky first couple of years because we'd, you know, lesson number one, I guess, is, uh, of, of starting a business and being an entrepreneur is we'd raised enough money to get the site open, to build it, to get the equipment in, but actually we'd not really factored in enough for the working capital that we needed to fund the business until it became profitable so it wasn't right. profitable for the first 18 months we were losing money and we hadn't we didn't have money in our bank or any other kind of source of finance to really cover that so we had a a, a very exciting few, first few months because we had this brand new concept <laughs> that everybody loved but behind the i mean it's the typical you know duck on water thing where we were trying to portray this image of a very successful startup that was, everything was running really well for on the surface but underneath we were battling furiously to stay alive um which is you know not an uncommon situation yeah uh, but fortunately we got through that you know we, we kind of bottomed out and and ran out of money but just just at the moment that our, our sales got to the point where we became profitable and then we raised some money because i realized that, i mean i felt what we were doing was offering fantastic food and drink in an environment where it wasn't typically found and it seemed to me that actually there were lots of locations 
in the UK where it wasn't necessarily easy to find great food and drink, particularly great food and drink on the go in a, an affordable format. So, you know, we, we never have never made any claims to be a restaurant or a, a high-end dining business. So we were very much aimed at trying to make great food more widely available and at a reasonably affordable price. And it felt like there were lots of other opportunities to do that and to support all the amazing small food and drink producers that I'd got to know over the years and give them more opportunities. Uh, and we raised some money crowdfunding initially in 2013. That in kind of with the death of institutional lending became came the rise of crowdfunding and and other methods of of funding endeavor. Uh, mm. And and I was going to ask you if that if that played its part, but uh, clearly it did. Yes, it was brand new, 2013. I think it they just found a way to make this make make it legal, I guess, to be able to do it. Uh, equity crowdfunding so we offered shares in our business uh, in return for people investing and it was made available to to retail investors so as opposed to professional institutions and it was i guess it was a little bit the wild west days of crowdfunding this was so new that it was a little bit like anything goes and you could kind of draw up the rule book yourself but it was very it was very exciting really it gave it was the opportunity for us to offer shares in the business to our to our customers and our most loyal customers, the people that supported the brand the most, wanted to support us by investing in the business. And we, we made shares available from £10. So we, we did it from a very affordable standpoint. And actually what was, what was exciting was how many people invested relatively small sums. So clearly they're not, they're not looking to, to make a fortune off, off of this. And it was, a, an, a, in some cases, an emotional decision based on them wanting to support us as a brand and wanting us to thrive, which, yeah. which was which was a really amazing uh, experience to have. And, and also it was a very, uh, we had a very difficult decision actually that we had to make because during the process of raising the money, I've been out there talking to anybody and everybody that might listen to me to, to obviously try and uh, get the funds together. And as part of that, I've met a number of, professional investors and VCs and towards the end of the crowdfunding process. So we'd actually had the amount. So we set out to raise 700,000. And uh, I think at this point we'd, we were overfunding. So we'd had pledged about three quarters of a million. So we knew that we had the cash and we had a yeah. counter offer from a, from a, from a venture capital trust called, um, called Pembroke. And they offered to fund the entire amount. And we were, I guess I was fortunate enough to be in a position that I could dictate terms because we already had the money on the table from another source, but they were also just really keen to work with us and that quite unusual for the time. They were prepared to invest in a, an early stage startup that we'd obviously got one site, but most VCs tend to want you to have four or five locations and to have a proven model before they will get before they will invest uh, and we decided that strategically it was probably better for us as a business to have that kind of expertise on board and we ended up not taking the money from the crowd so it, it never actually came to us although it had been pledged it, it, it we didn't actually take the money uh, and then we we took the investment from a, from a VC uh, and the idea was that that would then open our next site but coming up was the renewal of our lease at St Pancras because unfortunately 
leases in train stations tend to be quite short, so you don't have a great deal of security of tenure. And we realized that the, the future of the business really lay on us renewing our lease. And the person doing the leasing had changed, and I didn't really have a, a much of a relationship with this this new person. And it was looking a bit shaky, to be honest. Uh, and if right. we'd lost that lease at St Pancras, we'd we'd have suddenly lost, you know, the entire revenue of the business at that point. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, a, a flagship location. So all of our efforts went into renewing that lease. And during the lease discussions, so it, it had started off quite bad because I'd actually found out through the grapevine that the location was being offered to other businesses. So, really? Um, right. Yeah. I mean, you know. It's uh, just such a wonderful way to do business, isn't it? Just um... Well, what I later found out, I think it was more to, for them to really get the market value of the site and to use it as a, as a negotiating tactic with us. Right. I don't think... The what well, certainly they the the senior people in the station saw us as an anchor tenant and they didn't want to lose us. I think perhaps the the a certain junior person whose whose name I will not mention was perhaps trying to demonstrate his worth by proving what he could get for it if somebody else came in. Yeah. Uh, obviously, that didn't didn't help me and certainly gave gave me a number of sleepless nights. But we went from being in the position of thinking, oh, my God, we're going to lose the site to having a very interesting conversation where we started talking about how we could make the site bigger in order to be able to serve more customers and be able to serve them better. Because we had a number of problems with how cold it was in the station in the winter and our site was completely open. Uh, which meant there was, and there was just a, a gale would blow through the the station yeah. on cold winter days, and people would sit there, you know, absolutely freezing their proverbials off um, whilst trying to have a, a coffee or, or or a beer with us. So mm. these conversations led to the opportunity for us to actually build the entire site forwards onto the station concourse and create about thirty five percent additional space. So this is this is another useful lesson. Actually, another thing I would never do again is do major structural work in a grade one listed operating train station because that yeah, was that, that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, that was that was a project. Um, but we 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 obviously took this opportunity because it came with a, a longer well we negotiated a longer lease in return for us spending the money which made a lot of sense for us long term. But in the short term, it meant that the money that we just raised from taking our investment that was supposed to open our second site suddenly got used to uh, re- expand and refit our first site. So we then went back to square one and were looking again for the money to open our second site. Right. And we went back to crowdfunding. Uh, and this time we, we raised a million pounds uh, through issuing a bond, so a crowdfunded bond which is where people can uh, invest in your business for a fixed return. So we offered a, an 8% coupon. So basically people earned 8% interest over the life of the bond. And then at the end of the term, they get their, get their money back. So we offered a better rate than what you would get investing in, in other uh, interest-bearing products. Yeah, especially um, at that time, I would imagine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, well, that's the same time we live in now, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's funny how uh, things go in circles. Yeah. So yeah, that 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 enabled us to so raising that million pounds enabled us to open our second second site, which is uh, on Wigmore Street in Marlborough. 
yep. and our third site in Victoria, just outside the station. And then we, we grew the business. We opened a, a small site in Barbican, working with a, with a hotel group in 2000. Uh, so those Marleburn and Victoria were 2016. We opened at Barbican in 2017. And we did um, a small coffee kiosk with Eurostar in the, uh, a new part of the departures lounge in 2018. And then we got to, to where we are now. So we were, we were five sites in 2000 in March. Then we went down to having no site open and then we reopened St. Pancras and we have now closed permanently two of our sites in London. So uh, right. sites two and three, which is Wigmore Street and uh, Victoria, because they're quite heavily reliant on white collar office workers. And right. as you probably know from uh, any trip you've made to zone one of London, office workers have not returned to their offices. So yeah. we just took that decision early on to get out quickly and, and cleanly. And it was, a, it was in line with our strategy anyway to focus on travel. And we put our energies into getting some pancreas back up and running and opening a new site in the motor service station. Yeah. And here we are. And here we are. That's a hell of a journey, actually. And I don't mean to use that as a travel pun. Um, <laughs> it was um, in terms of it's almost like this period has actually kind of helped, uh, I suppose, polarize your strategy as opposed to it being, uh, oh, my God, we're, we're going to have to pivot and do this, mm. um, which is, yeah, it's quite quite interesting that um that as you said actually in, in adversity uh, quite uh, opportunity can present itself not that i think any of us ever thought that this would lead to much opportunity but but there we go that's a story for another time you seem to like risk is that fair to say <laughs> or has it just happened by accident <laughs> that's an interesting question i think i'm perhaps comfortable with a higher degree of risk than perhaps some people are, um, but also I think it's something that I've learned to live with over time through what I've done. Yeah, I think being comfortable with risk and, and there's different types of risk. There's a calculated risk. So this jumping off a bridge is a high risk thing to do, but jumping off a, brisk, a, a bridge, the same bridge when you have a parachute and you know the distance from the bridge to the nearest piece of solid ground is a calculated risk. And I think that's a, a key difference to make. I think all entrepreneurs need to be comfortable taking risk, but the important bit is to calculate the risk as accurately as you possibly can. And I think that's what will enable you to be, to succeed rather than fail. And then that, that is also probably the difference between a successful and less successful entrepreneur. Yeah. What I find interesting about your journey is um, the fact that you, on the face of it, certainly you, you've you never really had, excuse this phrase, but a proper job, as it were. You've always founded your own things to do. Is that Did you have a, a period of, of employment in inverted commas or have you always just kind of gone, there's an opportunity, let's do it? The last time I had to fill out a CV and went for a job interview was in the period immediately following university uh, when I got a job as a ski rep for six months. And yeah, since then I've, I've not had in inverted commas uh, a proper job. And uh, it's an interesting question because I've, I've, I've completely changed what I do over the last 
year and then we've had COVID and actually I, I started doing a lot more mentoring and consultancy for food and drink startups and scale-ups. Um, so I have actually, as part of this, and also I've considered a, a few non-exec roles, and as part of this, I've had to put a CV together. Um, right. And it's the, the first time in two decades that I've, I've done it. And um, yeah, I've probably found it a hell of a lot harder than most people would. Yeah, well, I suppose as well because your 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 skill set would be pronounced towards the the business that you that you've had, and actually sometimes putting that down on paper can be a very tricky thing, especially when you're doing it yourself and and you can't kind of just step away and have a, a real look at what you've done. But actually, what you'll learn is probably that you've got, as any entrepreneur would have, a, a three hundred and sixty degree focus on the business, and that that gives mm-hmm. you skills in so many different areas. Mm-hmm. True. So that uh, talk to me about that then. What's uh, your you've made that move? You were making that move anyway uh, into to the mentoring. What what kind of things are you getting involved with? Well, um, let's give you I guess a little bit of the background behind it. Last for so 2018, I, I kind of realised that the 10 year anniversary of our as opening our first site was coming up. That was August of last year. And I guess it was a little bit like having one of those big birthdays where you look back and assess your life or your career today. And I, I, I asked myself whether I'd achieved everything that I'd set out to achieve. Yep. And the answer was no. Um, I mean, for various reasons, but what I guess partly because the goalposts move along the way as you set yourself new, uh, new objectives. But I realized that I'd been doing, I'd been running Source Market for 10 years and that was you know, a decade of, of your life is a long time. And I started to think whether I wanted to do something different. Personally, I'd probably had the first year where I'd not 100% loved everything that I was doing. Um, it had felt like we were just having to tackle the same problems over and over. And it was uh, a lot more operational issues. And the business had got a bit bigger. Um, it was no longer the sort of scrappy startup. And it required different skills to, to run it. And I over a period of time, I mean, this is a thought process that went on for six months or so, I think I came to the conclusion that I wanted to do something else and potentially somebody else might be better than me at taking source market through the next decade. And I was fortunate enough to be introduced to a chap called Scott McDonald, who was the managing director of Bills, took that business from four to 72 sites in a four or five year period. Yep. And he was originally going to get involved with us uh, on a consultancy basis for a specific project, but it turned out he was, was actually looking for his next big role. And, and the timing just seemed right. We'd raised a bit of money. So we were in a position where we were fortunate enough to, to be able to bring on board a, a big hitter with a great track record. And Scott joined us uh, as managing director and I stepped into the to a non-exec role. So I'm now chairman and uh, I've handed over the day-to-day operations of the business to Scott. And I actually was hired as CEO for a new wellness startup in December of last year. And we spent a few months writing the investment deck and, and getting the getting the idea ready to go to investors. And then, uh, and then COVID hit and uh, that went on ice. Yep. Source obviously got shut down as an events business. 
Um, we also have an events business, got shut down, and um, I'm involved in a, a farmer's market in uh, Clapham, as, as you mentioned, got shut down. So I went from having all of these things going on to, to literally everything being closed and going into crisis management for, for all of those businesses. And then that was that was two months and then came out the other side. And for, for complicated reasons, the wellness concept isn't getting going again and um, Source is now back up on its own two feet. We've raised a bit of extra cash. We've got this new site open. So I'm stepping back out to to just doing a few days a month on that as a non-exec. And over this time, and obviously connected with a, a number of the food and drink businesses that I've got to know over the years just to find out how they were all doing. And I realized that actually what I really enjoyed and what I did, what was using what I'd learned over the 10 years of running Sourced and probably more than anything else, having learned from all of the mistakes that I've made and perhaps being able to support younger founders with their businesses because I think there's some real opportunities now in food and drink and we've got some really big problems that the food industry needs to contribute to solving so yeah, I'm doing some consulting and some mentoring, and uh, and that's where I've been focusing my attention. This keeps coming up in in a lot of conversations I have on and off air actually about um, about the f- the food industry in in its kind of entirety. I suppose is that there's a lot more focus going now into provenance and actually mm-hmm. ethical farming and. Um, I did a little tour with a, a farmer around the newly opened Birch in um, Hertfordshire. Uh, so, uh, my uh, my wife's there today. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, quite there random. <laughs> yeah. She has to do the talk with uh, with Farmer Tom. It's um, it's it's a game changer uh, in terms I'll of message just, now. Yeah, it's um, and he talks about you know one thing that I took I took many things away from it, but the main point that I took was effectively that we are killing the land mm-hmm. and if we don't do something about that in terms of returning back to a more what well, I, I suppose an old school way of farming really which is to to use proper rotations and not mm-hmm. use pesticides because the pesticides kill more than just the pests they're supposed to mm-hmm. then we're going to run out of topsoil in the world in 60 years mm-hmm. completely right yep. yeah that's um that's quite humbling to hear something like that and it it makes you think that you know as someone who is not currently involved in the food industry other than being a you know a periphery recruiter as it were that that's to me is a bigger problem that needs a lot more focus Mm. there's two the two big huge challenges that uh, that we have and they're they're linked the first is the climate crisis and food and drink if you look at the production, transportation, consumption, and in many cases, waste of food, it contributes, depending on the metric that you use, between 25 and 30% of global greenhouse gas gas emissions. So that's more than all forms of transport combined. So more than road, shipping, air, which obviously gets a lot of bad press. So clearly, if we are to limit the the temperature increases to, to ideally one and a half percent or less, but even two percent, the food and drink industry needs to look at how food is produced, how it's transported and how it's consumed and look at ways of, of doing all of this using producing less greenhouse gas emissions. So that's that's you know one of the key problems we're going to solve. I think the other is health 
Uh, we've obviously got an obesity epidemic in this country and we've got all sorts of other health issues that are increasingly being proven that they result from poor diets. Yeah. And a lot of this is because of it, it. A lot of it is because of the way we eat and it's to do with, 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 you know, lack of exercise and things as well. But actually a lot of it is to do with the industrially produced food and the fact that it, it's in many cases, not neither great for the planet nor, nor for, for the people. Yeah. So I think that's the other challenge that we we need to uh, we need to work on. It's it's looking at how we improve the quality of the food that we eat and and improve the health of of everybody that that eats it and also the the planet that produces it. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And I think the the key thing about all of this is is that a lot of people will be aware that this is the case in in very you know important and uh, important positions, but also you know that, that can do something about this but the the way to solve it is to keep everybody at the table and i think mm-hmm. a, a lot of the time the, when there's a, a big issue that comes up it's immediate point finger as to all the things that we've done wrong at the end of the day we mm-hmm. can't affect what's past but we can affect what what comes our way so that's mm-hmm. the 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 message i'd say to anybody who wants to to get involved in this is that get behind it for sure but but make sure that you're not alienating people from the argument. Yeah. And I think that's the exciting thing about working with startups and, and to some extent scale-ups, but predominantly startups, is they're coming to the table with a new idea and a fresh approach and they haven't got any of the baggage of, of history. And it's just very exciting to people that have come up with a solution to a problem or come up with a way of doing something better and have the the energy and the ambition to to bring that to reality. Yeah, absolutely. Great stuff. Well, I, I said to you that this is very light and we won't go into opinion pieces, but there we are. We've just spent the last <laughs> 10 minutes talking about uh, deep subject and uh, and light. But it is an important subject, I think, and I think it should be on everybody's agenda. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, it still means that we get to eat better food that tastes yeah, at least as good, if not better, than than what we eat now. So there's an upside yeah. to all of this. It's not all, it's not all serious doom and gloom stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's go back very quickly to to your your journey. Uh, can you give us? Well, it sounds like you've had more than a few occasions where you've you've been in terrifying situations. Uh, more mainly based out of the risk that you've that you've put upon yourself. But can you give us? Um, some some stories of of when you've just found yourself completely out your depth Oof, i guess there's been a few over the years uh i mean certainly i guess the first first major one was signing the the big lease without having the money to bring it to life i do remember one scary moment when we were running out of cash and obviously one of the ways that we were staying alive was to stretch out our creditor payments and uh, one of our biggest creditors was Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs. So we we been right. we were we were very late with making our PAYE payments, and we'd not we'd had a couple of letters, and you know it seemed like we were not on their radar for whatever reason. So um, I was hoping that we were. I mean, the hope is that you you know keep keep not paying it for long enough until you've got some money coming in and then pay it. But then one day we we just had a um, a guy in a suit and a briefcase turn up from HMRC. And, you know, his opening lines were something along the lines of, you know, I'm here to repossess all of your uh, equipment to try and recoup some of the money that you that you owe us. So it, 
at, at that particular Sweet. minute, it felt like that was that was the end. Uh, you know, they were going to kind of shut the business down, and and uh, there was going to be a fire fire sale of our assets. But uh, fortunately, it didn't it didn't appear to be quite that serious. And um, the guy had come to our office, not our trading location, and our right. office was our office was maybe I don't know eight meters squared and in a shared office building with all of the furniture supplied by the shared office building and a few kind of beat up old computers and, and a printer, none of which were really worth more than a few hundred quid. So it sort of dawned on me that actually, even if they did end up repossessing all of this equipment, it was not really going to have an impact on us running the business and that we probably had a little bit longer to, to rescue the situation. But actually, uh, um, it was probably more uh, intended to be a, a shot across the bows and say, we're on to you, sort your shit out. And uh, otherwise it, it really will be game over. And uh, and I think we took that shot across the bows quite seriously and, uh, and managed to, I think we agreed a payment plan and kind of clawed our, our way out of it. But there was, there was definitely the moment where it felt like it was all over for sure. Yeah. I think there'll be a lot of people in a similar situation at the moment. Granted, HMRC are probably being a little bit more lenient currently, but I don't imagine that that goodwill will last forever. Well, we'll see. I mean, to give full credit to HMRC, they have been, I think, in all of my experiences of dealing with them recently for various businesses, extremely accommodating. And I've had answers faster and, and way more understanding uh, a, a much greater understanding about the problems that everybody's facing because yeah. i think everybody realizes there is a big external issue that none none of us and none of us businesses have caused and um, i think ultimately they realize that it's in their best interest to keep businesses afloat uh, rather than shut them down and have no chance of uh, of any income coming in their best bet is to agree very sensible repayment plans and uh, keep people afloat and then that's that's the best way of keeping people in jobs keeping taxes coming in and keeping the whole thing going so so far i have to admit hmrc have been really good brilliant yeah i have to say my my own experience of that is exactly the same touch wood and so mm-hmm. far and hopefully they, that maintains for a while um yeah we shall see great stuff okay if people want to get a hold of you to to have a, chew the fat learn a little bit more about you or, or your businesses that, that you're involved with? What's the best method for them to do that? Yeah, I mean, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, that's probably a, a good way to communicate with me. Just if you kind of Google Ben O'Brien Source Market, you'll find me on LinkedIn. Or just drop me an email, ben at sourcedmarket.com. And uh, yeah, I'm not the quickest on email, but I do, do get back eventually. So by all means, get in touch. Yeah, I can vouch for that, mm-hmm. actually. You're uh, not uh, not necessarily in the first point, but you do always come back. Right. You were never that slow with me, so don't don't worry about that. Good. Great. Final thing. Well, why should somebody start a career in hospitality? Oh, good question. Well, I think now there's a great opportunity starting from scratch. Uh, I think people will always want hospitality, and I think the thing to remember that hospitality is it's it's a number of things combined. It's it's providing but ultimately it's about providing an experience so people should start in hospitality because of a passion for providing an experience and that can come through uh, a passion for making people happy a passion for creating an amazing product so you know a menu or food and drink item um or ideally a a combination of those things so i think it, it 
it's an opportunity for people with all different kinds of, of, of skill sets, but ultimately passion for doing something really, really well. And I think hospitality provides great opportunities for people from all kinds of backgrounds, quite often starting from scratch. I mean, just thinking about some of the people that we've taken on at Source Market over the years. So I can think of one particular person, a girl called Federica, who, who joined us fresh off the boat from, from Italy with no experience. Uh, and she started off just as a, a team member with us, but she had a again a passion for doing something really well. She kind of fell in love with coffee, became a barista, did her training, became a trainer, ended up becoming our head of coffee, and then actually went back to Italy to uh, enter into the Italian barista championships and uh, and came fifth in her first attempt. So wow. you know she'd just been on this amazing journey, uh, and that was pure kind of I guess fell into hospitality by chance like a lot of people do because it's a relatively easy uh, sector to get into and get your first job as but there's real opportunities there for anybody that's got a bit of drive that's got a bit of passion uh, and I think there's so many different routes that you can go down you can found your own business you could be at back of house in the restaurant creating the products you can be front of house providing an amazing experience you can you can go and create your own food or drink products and become a producer. I mean, there's just so many things that you can do. So I think it's just, uh, uh, yeah, I think it's a great career to have. Yeah, and within that, if your if your your focus is is the more I suppose drier subjects like finance and law, you can still mm-hmm. come on, come in and do that as well. Yeah, I think I think all of us in hospitality need need lots of help with with finance and law because that's not necessarily yeah. our, our top of our list of skills so yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely i think the the one takeaway from from your own journey is is basically if if what you want doesn't exist just go and start it yourself yeah absolutely just just do it i think i think that's sometimes the biggest hurdle is uh not being confident enough that you've got the right idea or that you can do it but actually it probably isn't necessarily the right idea and you're probably not the best at it start start with but just get started iterate continue working at it and, and you'll get there yeah absolutely and i think don't be afraid to ask for help if you, if it falls outside of your your own skill set as well no i think i think that's really important i think i was probably looking back i was probably too afraid to ask for help because i i guess i didn't really believe that people that had were successful and had already achieved something would see any reason to help me but now having being a bit older and I guess having been on that journey, I would say one of the most important things that you can do as as a younger person, and be it whether it's just for career advice or because you're starting up a business, is to to look for help. And that can take the form of a mentor. It can take the form of an advisory board for your business um, because actually people are really willing to help. And I think probably the, the most, warming thing that I've experienced through COVID is how the hospitality industry has come together to support everybody in it yeah. and I think that really demonstrates how uh, everybody is there for everybody else uh, be it as, as mentors or advisors or just sharing advice and best practice yeah and and equally to keep us all driving forward uh, mm. to, to make making everything just a little bit better mm-hmm. yeah I mean that's what hospitality is all about isn't it yeah, yeah making things a bit better and uh, sharing that experience with everybody else. Yeah. And I suppose that falls nicely into to what you're kind of doing now and, and giving something back through your own experience. I hope so. Yes. So yeah. uh, I hope so. <laughs> Excellent. 
Well, Luke, that's been a real pleasure to to learn about your journey, especially because you've not got what I would classify as a typical hospitality journey. But I, I don't think there is such a thing in any case. So that's that's why I was very keen to to chew the fat with you for a, a little bit, just to to demonstrate to people that there there are so many different ways that you can get into this amazing industry. Well, thanks for thanks for inviting me on, Phil. That was that was great to talk. Absolute pleasure, and I wish you all the very best with what's ahead. Thank you. Yeah, come and come and check out the new site if you uh, are on the M1. We're Junction Forty Five, just on the southeast corner of Leeds. So I'm almost tempted to go for a journey just for that. To be honest, <laughs> just so I can experience some some nice. I'll make it. I'll make food. it worth your while. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good man. All right. All the very best. Take care. Thanks, Phil. Bye. Cheers now. Bye-bye. And there we have it. A thoroughly interesting chat from Ben demonstrating what it takes to get a startup off and running. A good idea, tenacity, and being comfortable with risk. Don't forget, we launch a brand new episode each week, so hit that subscribe button and give us a like and a share where you can. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.